Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find the book of Esther. Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We have gone over the hump of the story. The kind of pivot point was last week with Esther chapter 6. And now we're on the back end where God is going to, by his providential hand, undo all of the dangers that have seemed to add up against the people of God, Israel. We've come this morning, as you're finding Esther 7, to Esther's second banquet. So remember, she had a a, a feast at first for Haman, uh, the enemy of the people of God, and for King Ahasuerus, her husband. And it was there that the king asked a second time, uh, Esther, what is your request? What is your wish? I'll, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And her request was to come back tomorrow to another feast. And so last week we saw Esther wasn't in the story at all in Esther 6, but Haman was. And he had uh, decided to kill Mordecai. Uh, he had decided to go to the king early to uh, petition for that authority to execute one of the officials. Uh, but the king couldn't sleep and decided to read from the books of the Chronicles of all the things that he had done, all the good things that he had done, realized that he had not blessed Mordecai for his service and saving him from an assassination attempt. It required a lot of honor, a lot of reward, because that's a big deal. And so instead of coming in to receive authority to kill Mordecai, Haman comes into this question by the king, what what should the king do for the one in whom he delights to honor? And Haman, this prideful, arrogant official, decides to think, he must be talking about me. So he shoots for the moon, says, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and the king says, awesome. All those things, I want you to do that for Mordecai. <laughs> I want you to do that for the one who's sitting out in the gate, Haman's enemy. And Haman is embarrassed. He is distraught. He's in mourning. He's wondering what's going on. He goes to his wife and his friends last week at the end of chapter six, and they say, oh, if If Mordecai is of the people of the Jews, then you will not stand before him. You will certainly fall. And this kind of prophetic word goes out from them to say to Haman, your end is pretty much sealed. And so at the end of that section in verse 14 of Esther chapter 6, we see that as Haman is trying to think through these things, the eunuchs come to take Haman to the second banquet. And that's what we pick up in our story today. In light of... Esther's strategy to save the people of God, we must remember that all that I just talked about, all the events of chapter six have just happened in the, in, earlier in the same day. I mean, all of this is taking place in one day. Haman has just been whisked from his home. Mordecai had just been honored. And behind what's about to happen is God's providential work. He is bringing about his purposes for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Hopefully, we will read in chapter seven things that will... Uh, uh, draw us into worship, draw us into marvel, draw us in to learn rich truth about who God is and what he does. So let's start Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Let's pray before we go any further. Father in heaven, we read this request, we read this offer from King Ahasuerus, and we know as your inspired, inerrant, infallible word that it is for us to to know and to understand 
And so Lord, I pray that as we study Esther chapter 7, as we look and see how your providential hand works to bring about the good of your people and the glory of your name, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that could be transformed. God, help me to teach with the authority that only your spirit can give. Help these students and leaders to have ears to hear in in ways that only your spirit is able to empower. And Lord, in all things, we pray that you might be glorified as the people of God study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can see the title of this message is on the screen. It's Just Desserts. And uh, I kind of said this is tongue in cheek. I mean, we're at a second banquet. They've been feasting. It's it's at the end of the feast where normally you would have a dessert, but uh, they're, they're drinking, and Haman is about to get his just desserts. That's a phrase that basically just means get what you deserve. Um, and so as we see throughout this story, we're going to see the king offer a request, or the Esther, rather, offer a request. The king is going to respond, and Haman is going to receive his reward. And I use reward uh, very loosely there. It's actually going to be his destruction But it is, in fact, what he deserves. It is his just deserts. God will be just in judging the wicked. So all this planning, all this fasting and lamenting, and what we can assuredly think also is praying, has come to this moment. The king is cheered in his heart with more wine. It's been the second feast that he's enjoyed from Esther. And now he is offered for a third time to give to Esther whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom, whatever you request, whatever you wish, I want to give it to you. He is on the line to fulfill this invitation. So let's see what she says. Look at verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So there it is. There's the request. Give me my life. Spare the lives of my people. And why do I need to ask you for that? Because we've been sold, not into slavery. We've been sold to be destroyed. We've been sold to be killed. We've been sold to be annihilated. So I want us to see just a couple of things from Esther's request. We see that she asks the king in a way that is fitting. It is fitting for how the world empire works. So as we think about this, if you're taking notes this morning, you can write just the first one. You'll see it on the screen is Esther's request. Esther's request. Not just what she says, but how she says it is important. She's left the king with a little piece of information missing, right? She has not said who her people are. And she has not said who has sold them, who is who has bought them to be destroyed. She hasn't said who the enemy is, and she hasn't said who her people are. She wants the king to figure this out kind of on his own. She wants to draw him in with his emotion so that he will rightly be on her side and not deliberate what is best for him. So first, notice that she doesn't indict Haman. She doesn't say, my request and my wish is that you would destroy Haman because he's trying to kill me. 
She wants the king to recognize that someone wants her dead. And right now, that's all she wants him to know. Not only that, but the people to whom she belongs, Esther says, they are valuable to the king. They're valuable to the king. Slavery would not have caused Esther to complain, she says. In fact, that might have been a slight nod to the fact that she basically was enslaved as the queen of Persia through the conscription of all the young, beautiful women in the Persian empire. Esther's appeal to finding favor in the king's eyes. That's how she starts. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, that isn't just uh, a term of respect or endearment or colloquial usage that people would say to the king. No, her whole argument is banking on the fact that the king has found favor with her. And as we've seen throughout the story, the king has loved her more than anyone else. He has given her favor multiple times. Second, notice that she uses the exact language of the decree Haman wrote against the Jews. So the decree says that they are going to be delivered over to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. That threefold judgment. At this point, we don't see what Haman is doing. We don't see Haman's response. But I mean, you got you to think, Haman, is, he's, he's, he's been embarrassed. He's been mourning. He's had a bad day. And now he's at least with the king and the queen remembering that he is a person of prestige, remembering he is a person of influence, remembering that he's a person of honor. He's enjoying this time, drinking with the king and the queen, and she starts to give off her request to be saved for her and her people. And he's like, ah, that's okay, whatever. I mean, I'm just here, almost like a fly on the wall. And then he hears the words, sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And he must know that that's his writing. Esther up to this point has not divulged to anyone that we know that she is a Jew. She hasn't told anybody that she's a part of God's people. And so for Haman to hear these words immediately must recognize that his decree to kill the Jews is actually a decree to kill the queen. This is not good for Haman. Third, notice that Esther argued that her and her people were valuable to the king. That their destruction would be a bad move, not just for their sake, that they would die, but they would be bad for the king. Since the king, as we've seen all throughout this story, is ultimately concerned with not his kingdom, but himself. Esther is fittingly arguing, O king, don't destroy my people because we are of great value to you. So she's appealing to his self-interest, just as the world empire appeals to self-interest. And it surely added some incentive to what he was about to do next. So Esther throws her request before the feet of the king. She lays it out there. Save me, spare me and my people. We've been sold to be destroyed. And that's not good for us, but it's also not good for you, O king. So if I found favor in your sight, spare us. Well, that's Esther's request. Number two, if you're taking notes, we see the king's response. The king's response. How will he respond to her request? Remember, he's now asked her three times. So for, her, for him to, uh, to renege on this request would, would be a great shame to him. It would be, bring great dishonor to the crown. Look at verse five. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? 
pause, we just say, according to verse 5, we can be confident that the king is on Esther's side. The king wants to make things right, and he wants to do it right now. Verse 6, and Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So the king asked, who is this person who has done this? Where is he? Why has he dared to do this? And in this sweet, dramatic, just cinematic scene. Like if we're watching this as a movie, this would be a huge part. Esther looks over to Haman and says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked, this vile Haman, he's the man. I mean, you think about the story of of David when he takes Bathsheba uh, from uh, her husband and, and brings her to his palace and and has his way with her, and then has her husband Uriah killed. And the prophet goes to David and tells that story of that little man with that little lamb and how the king who had all the sheep toes and takes that little lamb and and uses that for the feast of his family. And David says, who is this person that he should be condemned? The prophet says, David, you are the man. It's a similar kind of intensity, a similar kind of drama, and now everything is made clear. Haman is a foe and an enemy of the Jews. And the king is not on Haman's side. He is on Esther's side. Haman is helpless to stop this accusation from landing right on him. He's wicked. And what the readers of Esther have known from the beginning is now made plain to the king. This proud, arrogant, self-seeking official crumbles in terror. All the prestige in the world, all of the influence that he might have garnered up until this point has evaporated before the king. It means nothing. There is no power. There is no merit. There's no value to all of the things that he has sought for himself when his life is now required of him. The king arose from the feast and left the room. He's so mad. He left the room in his wrath, it says, while Haman stayed with Esther. So, so what's going on right here? I mean, why is it that the king just doesn't kill him right on the spot? Why does he go and leave in his wrath? Why does Haman stay with Esther? Well, we see Esther is the one in control right now, and Haman is going to beg for his life. But let's focus on Ahasuerus for a minute. Why doesn't the king simply destroy Haman? The reason is because Ahasuerus signed the decree that Esther is talking about with his ring. King Ahasuerus gave Haman his signet ring and said, send the decree out to my kingdom and seal it with my signet ring so that the world might know that this is coming from my authority. The king cannot revoke his authoritative word to kill the Jews now that it's gone out into the world. He can't kill Haman for something that the king clearly approved. The king is stuck. He's stuck. I want to dole out judgment to my enemy, but I'm caught in this whole web of unrighteousness and wickedness and a lack of understanding and neglect of his people. Remember, he didn't even ask who these people were. He just told Haman, hey, here's the ring, deal with it. 
The king wants Haman dead, but he needs another reason to remove him. So the king, in his wrath, gets up and leaves and starts to consider how he might bring Haman to judgment. And it just so happens, just so happens, that as the king leaves, Haman begins to beg for his life from Esther. Now, what we know about the Persian Empire and ancient Near Eastern cultures in that day is that there were very, very strict rules for how officials and citizens would interact with members of the royal harem. Remember, uh, Esther is the queen of the Persian empire, but she is also a member of his royal harem. All of these women who he would call his own. These women that the king would uh, objectify and, and talk about as if they were his possessions. But there were very strict rules. Haman would not be allowed to be alone with the queen. That would be off limits. And so he's making a very great risk to remain in the room with the queen. But, but what are his options? Right? He's either, he has option A, which is go try to find the king in the garden and, and risk his life there. He could try to leave, but then be seen as a traitor who's trying to escape. So he decides that the least bad option is to beg for his life before the queen by breaking the harem rules. It brings us to this incredibly ironic scene. Haman, the one who sought the death of the Jews. Why? Because Mordecai refused to bow to him, is now begging for his life by bowing before a Jewish woman. Try as he might, God's plan of judgment and redemption for Haman and the people of God respectively is invincible. It's untouchable. There is nothing in the universe that can happen that would thwart God's sovereign decree. And the king will just happen to see something here in just a moment. And Haman is about to receive his reward. So the third point for this morning is Haman's reward. The king has gone up to leave. Haman goes to beg for his life. Look at verse 8. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, just pause. In those cultures in that day, when you would go to have a feast, you would often be on a couch and you would often recline on that couch. It was a way of just comfort and a kind of slower pace of life. So the queen is reclining on this couch while she's talking about all of these things to the king. The king gets up and leaves and Haman goes to beg for his life. So what probably is happening is the, Haman is falling on his face before the queen to beg for his life. But from afar, the king looks in and sees a man falling on top of his wife in private, and thinks, this is my opportunity. Look at the rest of verse 8. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. From the king's perspective, it easily looks like Haman was trying to take advantage of Esther who was reclining on the couch. Now, it is very doubtful. Most scholars would agree. It's, it's very doubtful that the king really believed that Haman was trying to pull something like that at this moment. 
but the opportunity to get rid of Haman is right in front of him. So in another grand, ironic reversal, Haman is apprehended and sentenced to die on a false accusation. Just like the kind of false accusation Haman brought about to the king about the Jews who do not follow the king's laws. Look at verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. It is not a stretch, given the way the book has unfolded, to posit that the king and Esther, up until this moment, had no idea what Haman was up to regarding Mordecai. I mean, they had no way to know that Haman had built this gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, and the whole reason why Haman was coming to the king this morning was to ask for Mordecai to be killed. I mean, they would have had no idea because it never happened. And so right here in this moment, as as Haman is apprehended, Harbona, a eunuch that we meet all the way back in chapter 1, mentions, as the attendants and servants of royal palaces often do, they mention information that the family themselves have not been made aware of. Harbona says, hey, since we've got Haman and you want him dead, you know, he just built a gallows. Uh, He just built a gallows to kill Mordecai, that guy that you honored and blessed today. And remember, the king has just found out that Esther is part of the people of God. He, He doesn't know that there's any connection between Esther and Mordecai. And Esther, who last she heard was uh, that Mordecai was fasting and lamenting and praying for her to be successful in this, in this endeavor. They both find out that Haman was actually trying to execute Mordecai today. The king then is clear. He's sent over the edge. No more judgment required. No more courts. No more figuring out whether or not this is true. Hang him on that. Esther as well, was probably stunned. So Haman receives the reward for his efforts. His unrighteousness, his wickedness, and cursing of God's people led to a curse on his own head. Just as God promised to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3, the passage that we studied just a a few weeks ago, those who curse God's people will themselves be cursed. God's word will never fail. So the king has Haman hanged on a pole 50 cubits high, and it says the wrath of the king abated. He is no longer angry because judgment has gone forth. Now, it may seem like this is the happy ending that we all hoped for, but remember, we're in Esther 7, and it goes all the way to Esther 10. Surely, Esther, in this moment, has in the back of her mind the whole time, okay, this is very nice that Haman is being destroyed, but what about the Jews? I got... I asked you my request, which is to save us. So what's going to happen? Their deliverance has been guaranteed by Mordecai. Remember, he says, look, I believe that another, uh, that, <clears throat> that rather God's uh, purposes of deliverance will come forth, either through you or another deliverer. Somebody will be raised up 
to redeem God's people. Somebody will be raised up to save God's people. Mordecai believes that. And, and now it's seen for the reader in the shadow of the death of Haman the Agagite, enemy of the Jews. But will it be seen in its fullness? Will they actually be delivered? That's for the rest of the story to tell us. Well, as we conclude today's message and thinking about this text, I want to just consider a few points of application. First, students, we cannot avoid the fact that Haman sought the treasures of the earth above all else. And when it mattered most, it turned to dust. He was building his house, Paul will use in another metaphor, not with gold and silver and precious stones, but Haman was building his house with wood and hay and straw. And when the judgment came and the fires fell down, it was burned up and he was left with nothing. Setting our minds on the desires of the flesh, the things that draw us into greater sin in this world, will always, eventually, lead to ruin. Like last week, here again in Esther 7, we see a real grave warning. Students, you can make for your own self, in your own life, the king of the world and put the crown on your own head. You can set your life up in such a way that you are the emperor of your own world. You can make yourself king, but at what cost? When your life is required of you, what will your what will your status really be? Second, we're reminded once again that God is working all things for the good of his people. And yet here today, <clears throat> we see that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. Now that word means just means he's using things. He's using people. He's using events to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes God works in direct action. So we studied just a couple of weeks ago, 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah prays that God would answer him and the prophets of Baal by throwing down fire from heaven and consuming the sacrifice. And what does God do? He answers directly by throwing down fire from the earth. This miraculous event takes place. So sometimes God works through these direct actions. Or in Ezekiel 36, we just read about and studied about this past week, that the Spirit, God is the one who will exchange a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's the one who acts. He's the one who does it. It's a direct exercise of His power. Other times, and what I would argue and what the Bible would tell us is much more often the case, God works through indirect means. So, so here's an example. With your sanctification, as you and I grow to become more and more like Jesus, God's Spirit is the one who makes us more and more like Jesus. He, he is the one who transforms us from the inside out. But the Spirit will not read the Bible for you. Right? So the Spirit is the one who makes you more like Christ. He's the one who, who sanctifies you in the truth. But He's not going to make you float out of bed to your desk, open up the Bible, and start reading. 
You do that. You do that. You are the means through which God accomplishes his purposes. So if you want to be more like Christ, we trust the spirit to do the work, but then we are faithful to act. Or God is the one who grows your faith when you share the gospel in regular evangelism, but you have to speak. You you just being in the room is not sufficient. God works through these means and more to accomplish his good purposes. Here, it was Esther's boldness that God used to bring judgment on the wicked Haman. What about you? Do you have a right knowledge and a right practice of this tension that we feel sometimes between God's sovereign actions in the world and our responsibility to be faithful, to obey? Because some of us fall on the side of God's sovereignty into error. And we think, well, we just trust that the Lord will make all of our circumstances be better and he will make all of my problems go away and I don't have to do anything. Just sit back and watch God move. When that is never the testimony of scripture. Others of us neglect God's providential care and his sovereign control and believe that if something in my life is going to be fixed, it has to be up to me to change those circumstances. And we put all of the weight, all of the responsibility on ourselves to manufacture something that we just cannot do. So we're either constantly arrogant that we actually did something that seems to have an effect, or we're constantly in despair because no matter how hard we try, it just doesn't seem to be working. A biblical balance requires a confidence in God's power and sovereignty, and a commitment to actively work towards accomplishing his will. These two things are not incompatible. They are not in tension. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher in the 19th century one time, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with man's responsibility to act? And he chuckled and said, I don't have to reconcile friends. In scripture, these things are always together. It's why Paul says something similar about our own salvation in Philippians 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So so you, work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's the balance. God works and we work in our own lives and in the world. But the, the, the relationship is this. Because God works, we work. Finally, let's just notice the great contrast between King Ahasuerus and the Lord. Ahasuerus had a a big problem in Esther chapter 7. He wanted to destroy Haman, but was caught in his own unrighteousness. And so the only way that he could mete out this version of justice was through a false accusation, blaming somebody else for something he didn't do. Ahasuerus wanted to condemn someone, but had to create a false charge towards Haman to deal with his desire to maintain his own honor, to maintain his own prestige. The Lord had a problem as well. You see, it is is essential to God's nature to be blessed. It is 
natural for God to bless. It's, it's natural for God to give good gifts to His creation, to, to bestow joy and bliss and, and mercy and kindness towards them. But they did not deserve it. Because of our sin, a good God is not right to give gifts to traitors. It's not a good judge who says to the condemned sinner, well, your sins just aren't that big of a deal. Let me bless you anyway. No, God had a problem. He wanted to bless someone. He wanted to save someone, but they didn't deserve it. So what does God do? He doesn't create a false charge towards another person to deal with his desire to maintain his prestige. No, God takes a real charge from sinners upon himself to maintain his real righteousness. God can forgive you and me because God took our penalty when Christ went to the cross. So now instead of wrath, we have eternal favor before the throne. Because we are in Christ. The king is not fuming at us with wrath, but he is delighting in us with love. So don't miss in Esther 7 this beautiful gospel picture that this story points us to. Esther finds favor in the scene. But that favor that she finds with Ahasuerus is fickle, and it's ultimately based in self-interest that is unrighteous. We have favor forever. We have favor forever. Ahasuerus falsely blamed someone to have his way, but God took our blame to have his way. So my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would have this confidence, not wondering like Esther whether or not we're going to find favor in the sight of our king, but confidence that in Christ, we have eternal favor with God. We can avoid the judgment that we see meted out towards Haman. We can avoid wrath. We can avoid condemnation. We would rest in the finished work of the one who is faithful for us. The one who stood before the king for us. The one who pled for our life and paid our way so that we could enjoy his blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are just stunned once again by the scandal of the gospel. You were in the form of God, but you humbled himself. You, you emptied yourself by becoming a servant. You were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You suffered the curse for our sake so that we could forever go to the Father's throne and receive favor and not wrath, joy and blessing, not condemnation. So God, I pray that we would see the real warning from Haman in Esther 7, that if we delight in the things of the world, if we try to make a kingdom for ourselves, it will crumble before us when it matters most. That we might think and our hearts are easily led to believe that real joy and real satisfaction and real happiness will be found in those things. But we must remember, God, help us open our eyes to see that is a lie. 
that joy and satisfaction is only found in doing what we were created to do and being who we were created to be. It's bearers of your image, reflecting your glory back to you. So God, help us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Help us to see with confidence that your word is faithful. Help us to trust you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.